0: Hello, this is Pastor Nate Ward with Open Door Church, and I wanted to take a moment to welcome you to our podcast. It's my personal prayer that you would be encouraged and encountered by the Holy Spirit and challenged by His Word. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Okay, guys, I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. Um, it's been a little surreal. Um, or just maybe not surreal, It's just been a little bit out of sorts, that it's been two weeks since I've had the privilege of preaching. And uh, everybody might be enjoying that break and and excited about that. And uh, I don't know, we've had some awesome services the last number of weeks where we had uh, a team come in from Pueblo Christian Center, the church that I was saved in, Pastor Tony shared a phenomenal word that was just uh, on point. It was fire. That should be something. We do have a podcast now. It's on Apple iTunes Podcasts as well as our website, Open Door Pagosa, if you've missed any of these. Last week, we were able to host some missionaries uh, with Global University, and so that was a lot of fun. Um, But I, I kind of got in this place where I was disrupted. I was in a flow, and then we took a step back. Um, and I've been eager to get back to Jesus' teaching um, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so that's where we're going we're gonna to jump back into today. We've been studying some of the most important and relevant words that were ever spoken to humanity. And these are the words of Jesus himself, right? Uh, and we're, we're, we're diving into what he had to say in this kind of famous discourse of his called the Sermon on the Mount, in an effort to answer the question, what does it look like to live like a Christian in a society that's hostile towards God? Really, that's, that's something that we recognize, especially, I think, even more so today than maybe we did 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago, is that our culture, American culture and world culture in general, is not uh, naturally receptive to the way of Jesus. And that was by design. All throughout history, the authentic way of Jesus has never been easy or embraced at large by the culture. And so people kind of think, you know, we throw around terminology like America was a Christian nation and these things. And it might have been easier at one point in time to identify as a Christian. But I don't want anybody to be fooled. The promise of Jesus to follow him, to take up your cross and deny yourself... Um, is always, has always, and will always be countercultural. And if you find yourself in a place where it's easy, I'd ask you to examine your surroundings and uh, really begin to check and see if what you're doing is actually fulfilling the call of God on your life. Because there uh, there is this aspect to saying yes to Jesus that embraces saying no to the rest of the world And that's countercultural. It's not easy. Um, But I I wrote some things down here. It's this understanding that we're called to change the culture for the kingdom by being actively engaged in it. I've walked out these expressions in past messages before. But I just felt the the need to reiterate and go back to uh, some of these uh, important thoughts in regards to the culture setting us up for our further discourse and kind of talking through the Sermon on the Mount. The first thing that I want to reiterate is that we're not called to just combat the culture, right? We're not called to just go to war with society. It's not that, oh, those movies are bad, those people are bad, everything out there is bad, and what we have in here is good and it's safe. Um, Because the reality of it is, is that it's not just about, good and evil, good and bad. The reality of it is it's about the difference between being dead and alive. What we have in faith in Jesus is a new life, is a second chance, is a new beginning. And the reality is that there are people out there without the hope of that life. The difference is not just between right and wrong, it's between life and death. And for us to just simply go into the culture and say everything there is bad, doesn't do much good for anybody. I, I need you to understand this because we're not called to just combat the cult. I, I'm gonna read some of these things so I don't uh, misstep and missay something that I should have said that was important. It's not the simplistic notion That what we have here is good and right, and what the world out there has is evil and bad. It's more than that. We have found life. As long as we're more concerned with being right than seeing dead people live, we miss out on the heartbeat of the gospel. It can't just boil down to making sure that everything we do is right and everything that we do is perfect, and having this lens of everything out there is wrong and needs to change. I believe we have to grasp the heartbeat of God and the fact that he wants dead people to live. He wants broken people to be made whole. And it's not so much about behavior modification as it is about transformation of a heart. Does that make sense? Okay. So I say this. We're not called to just combat the culture. We're not the world's moral police. Amen. Somebody say that. Okay, <laughs> I realize that God has issued a standard. There is right and wrong. I'm not trying to, to, to get off or try to kind of give some kind of weird picture of that, but the reality is telling someone they're doing something wrong without showing them a better way is worthless, right? I have been in that situation where I have been doing something. Okay, here's a good example. Joey and I and Elliot like to go play disc golf, and we're all really bad at it, well, these guys are a little better than me, but uh, our form is terrible. Elliot is kind of like the dad of the group and he's like the one actually researching things and like this is how you throw a disc right and this is how you throw it wrong and it's like examining our form. Uh, But the reality is if he just told me to throw it different, uh, I'm not going to understand exactly what that looks like or how that plays out. But when he rather showed us uh, the technique, and he showed us the form. It gave us an example to follow, and uh, maybe not all of you are visual learners like I am, but I definitely need that kind of example in my life if I'm going to follow through with something. And the reality is, just telling somebody that they're doing something wrong without providing an example of a better way to do it is going to live people continue is going to give people the opportunity to continue to live in dysfunction with an excuse that they've never seen a better way. And I believe that our role as Christians, our role as men and women of God, in order to transform the culture for the kingdom, not only need to bring this message that there is something wrong with society, wrong with the kind of the standards of this world, but we need to demonstrate a better way to live by how we live. Demonstrate that there is a way of the kingdom, and that's what gets at the heart of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, right? We we kind of examined it. We've looked at it. uh, Immediately preceding Jesus giving this message, it said that he began to preach. um, In Matthew chapter 4, it said that he began to preach, and his message was this, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so one of the easy definitions I've kind of compiled here for us as we've studied the Sermon on the Mount is that it really is... It's really fleshing out what genuine repentance looks like. What that change of heart actually develops in the life of a man or a woman who says yes to Jesus. Because there is fruit that is to be tangible in your life if you have says, if you have says. <laughs> okay, we're getting, okay, we're getting publo up in here. Uh, bad joke. I need to calm down. Uh I love that you guys laugh at my terrible jokes because I know you're not laughing at the joke. You're just laughing at me, and it makes me feel good. But, (laughs) um, yeah, Uh, we understand that we're called to change the culture by being actively engaged with it, living drastically different in the midst of it. And that brings us to this idea um, of why we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, why we've been breaking it down verse by verse And uh, we've been in the middle of it for quite a while. And then there's kind of this interruption in Jesus' sermon as he makes a a detailed teaching on prayer. And uh, that's what we've been talking about. We've been looking at arguably one of the most familiar passages in Scripture for a lot of people. Something that Jesus talks about as the Lord's, well, he doesn't talk about what our Bibles label it is. As the Lord's Prayer or the Model Prayer, but this is Jesus answering the question of one of his uh, of answering the question of his disciples. Lord, teach us how to pray. And His response is this teaching on prayer. It's something that we're familiar with. We've walked through it, and it's found in Matthew chapter six. If you guys want to turn with me there, you think I would already been turned there. I've got these nice, uh, this nice book bark, to so get me right there. If anybody, there's there's one person that'll appreciate that. Maybe two people in the room, um, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse nine. It says, "In this manner, therefore, pray: Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts." As we forget our debtors, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. We've made our way through uh, four of six different segments of this prayer that we've been breaking down and just trying to talk about in simplicity without overcomplicating things. And we've 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 established this, and I'm going to kind of do a little bit of a review, but. The Lord's Prayer is broken up into two parts. The first part that deals explicitly with uh, or primarily with God and his glory, the hallowing of his name, right, the coming of his kingdom and his will being done. And then it breaks into kind of a second half where there's three more petitions, three more requests of the prayer uh, in asking um, God to deal mostly with our personal needs, Uh, First of all, like we talked about two weeks ago, we looked at our daily bread, our practical needs that God actually cares about and wants to meet. And then it begins to shift here into spiritual needs where we see this request for forgiveness of sins or uh, forgiveness of debt, forgiveness of trespass. Um, And then the last um, but not least, is that we would not be led into temptation, but be delivered from evil. And uh, so we've been talking about each one of these petitions. And uh, today we get to talk about the fourth one, which is forgiveness. Can I be a little bit honest here? I hate asking for forgiveness. Anybody here just like it, right? I I don't think there's like a person on the planet that just says, you know what I love to do? I love to go up to somebody that I've had a disagreement with and be like, hey, Shelby, could you really forgive me for being really nasty to you at Olive's birthday party yesterday? Because I hope I wasn't. That, that was just an example. <laughs> but what that does is that that's an admission of guilt on some level. That's an admission of responsibility for a grievance on some level on my part. And so I have to surmount my pride to even ask for forgiveness because it's a recognition that Nate Ward is wrong. And I hate being wrong. Anybody else with me there? Okay, yeah. Some people are actually fear God, um, <laughs> and agree with me. Everybody else is perfect and holy. Great. Um, I'm kidding. It was a joke. I I hope anyway. <laughs> but the reality of it is is it's a it can be a hard thing asking for forgiveness or even recognizing that you're in need of forgiveness because it recognizes that some kind of inadequacy, some kind of fault of your own. Anybody here ever argue with a spouse? Like ever? <laughs> Janelle, your hand went up faster than I've ever... Kidding. It was the first hand that I saw, so it wasn't really a joke, but uh, thank you for being honest. Uh, I know that I have had disagreements and arguments and I'm still trying to figure out the way that I can ask for forgiveness without admitting that I was wrong. <laughs> Anybody have a spouse that does that? Like they'll say, you know, I'm sorry that I hurt your feelings, but I'm not sorry for what was actually taking place because I'm still right. I, that's something that I do. I am I know I'm kind of making light of it, but I've recognized and I realize that that's a natural tendency of mine. It's like, <laughs> Uh, it's an aspect of pride that Jesus has to deal with me on in the sense of, like, I I have to come to a place where I acknowledge I can be wrong. And Jesus actually has set it up in expectation that we're probably going to be wrong sometimes. That's, okay, before you cry, heretic. He said we could be perfect. Let's talk about some things. Um, so verse... Uh, Verse 12 here, uh, and forgive us our debts as we forget our debtors. Debtors, uh, it's kind of an interesting language here. If you read in the New Living Translation or even um, some other translations, it says, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And so there's a little bit of, like, a Greek nerdiness going on here that I wish I was, like, smart enough to just pretend that I knew how to pronounce these words, but I'm not. Um, but uh, most translations use the word debt here in Matthew, but elsewhere where the Lord's Prayer is recorded, they use the word sin. Or um, some of your uh, translations might even use the word trespasses. Um, the Greek word here is oph. Ophelia Mata. Um, I know that's wrong, but it means it is what is owed, and it's used interchangeably throughout the entirety of the New Testament with hamaratias, which is a falling short uh, or it's translated sins. And so we owe a great debt to God, pure obedience right? That's something that we owe to God. We owe him pure obedience. And anything short of that is coming short of his glory, and that is sin. So that's how the kind of the etymology works there. And that's why Romans tells us in 323 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I realize that might be... Um, I, I'm not a Greek teacher, <laughs> but that's, uh, it's just interesting to me. And so when you read this here, and when you read the Lord's Prayer in, um, in Luke 11, we see that the same language is used, but it translates sins. Or even depending on what uh, translation of scripture you use here, uh, we see sins. It's because a debt was owed that we could not pay, right? Songs that we sang today all fall into line there. But uh, it's, it's still interesting to me. And forgive our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. This is an interesting section in the Lord's Prayer, um, and it's distinct in a few different ways. Uh, First of all, uh, just notice the language here. It's simultaneously a petition, right, a request, uh, forgive us of our sins. And equally, it's a statement and a declaration, as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. And so it it carries this interesting weight that we're going to get back to in the moment. But uh, it's asking for forgiveness, a spiritual need, while we make the assertion that we have already forgiven those who have wronged us. I want you to think about that. That's going to stew. We're going to come back to that because it's an important part of this message this morning that we'll close on. But the second is that this is the only aspect of the Lord's Prayer that we kind of get a commentary on. We get like a little P.S. At the end of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus goes back and he references it. He brings some clarity in. Um, just to make sure that you understand what he actually was saying, what he was actually praying, so that there wasn't any kind of confusion, that there wasn't any gray area, that he actually said what he meant. He goes on in verse 14 and 15 of Matthew chapter 6, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. Sounds good, right? Everybody on board with that. 15, but if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. Whoa, that's heavy. Jesus, are you sure you meant that? Right? Are we sure like that's actually what it means? Can I tell you as a preacher this morning that believes in being saved by grace through faith and not by works, Jesus 100% means what he says here. He's saying that if you do not forgive other people, there's no forgiveness for yourself. Whoa, okay. How does that pan out? How does that work? These correspond with the words of Jesus in Mark eleven twenty six. 26. And Jesus says something very similar. Oh, look, he even threw him up on the screen there. Uh, but if you do not forgive, neither will your father in heaven forgive your trespasses. So this is obviously a big deal to Jesus. We see it throughout Scripture. We're going to read in Matthew 18 later where Jesus has a whole parable on this idea of forgiveness as an extension and reflection of what God's done in our life to the world around us. And he takes it so seriously that he says that if we don't operate and live in forgiveness towards others, that he will not forgive us that's intense, that's heavy, and that probably jars some of your theology, right? Anybody here, like, okay, everybody's got good theology. But for me, this was something I wrestled with. Like, God, how does that work? Are you saying that I'm not, like, saved, or I'm not, like, my salvation is not secured because I don't like my neighbor? And I've not forgiven the guy that's building a house next to me or, you know, the guy that, like, cut me off in traffic or something like that. You're not going to forgive me now, but I believe in yourself. What does this mean? And I think those are good questions to ask. What we, uh, I think the best way to start this is to look at this petition and realize what it is not. Um. The prayer "Forgive us our debts" is not a prayer of salvation. It's not a prayer to be saved, born again, or justified—any of that language that we would use. It's not what we would call a sinner's prayer. This prayer of "Lord, forgive us our sins" is not uh, the prayer of somebody coming to get right with God for the first time. Remember, this is a prayer that Jesus told his disciples to pray. It was expected that the people of God would pray in a manner like this. Jesus himself was praying this prayer, right? Did Jesus sin? Did he need forgiveness? No. He was modeling it for us that we might pray in such a manner. We might pray in such a way. And the reality is none of us have figured this Christian walk out perfectly, right? Anybody here not sin today? Maybe Oh, yeah, there you go. Good. <laughs> She's like, I've only been awake for 15 minutes. I think I'm doing okay. Right? Anybody do that, though? Like, we try to white knuckle it. I, I can guarantee you I have probably on some level grieved the heart of God in some way this morning. But I, I don't know about you. Like, when I first got saved, like, I would just, like, lock myself in the room and be like, God, I am not going to sin today. I'm not going to think about anything. Oh, and then I do it. Right? I just like white knuckle it, like because I'm so focused on not doing something that I miss out on what I'm actually supposed to be doing. Anyway, um, the reality is, uh, most of us in this place have a constant struggle with an old man that tries to resurrect itself, right? The reality is none of us in this room are perfect and flawless and nail it 100% of the time. The reality is as I grow in spiritual maturity, as I grow closer to the Lord, I spend more time repenting And more time recognizing that I've grieved the heart of God with my actions today than I did when I first got saved. Because I I have clearer picture of the holiness and the majesty of God. I realize how much of me still hasn't been crucified. How much of me still grieves God. And it's a consistent daily struggle for me to ask God, Lord, would you forgive me of my sin? Lord, would you forgive me of what grieves your heart? Because I don't want it there. I don't want that to be an aspect of me. There is the conviction of the Holy Spirit as I grow closer to the Lord that is revealed. And I believe here what we're talking about is the fact that God still wants us to be forgiven and understand that what we do still hurts his heart. Our actions still can grieve the Holy Spirit, but that there is still more than enough forgiveness for us post-salvation as there was pre-salvation. Some of us have this idea that when we come to Jesus, we say yes to God, we say yes to Jesus, and we believe that he could forgive us for everything that we had ever done before we said yes to God, but we struggle with the notion and we struggle with the idea that God could actually forgive us for what we do here and now. You know, I believe that God could forgive me for murder before I said yes to Jesus. But, you know, I had a bad thought today and I walk around beating myself up all day, believing that maybe the blood of Jesus isn't enough for that. And I want to just encourage you, friends, that Jesus, even in this prayer, laid it out for us with the expectation that we would still need forgiveness. That we would still hurt his heart and that we would still need it and you'd say well aren't we called to be perfect isn't jesus's command earlier even in this sermon to be perfect like i am perfect doesn't he say elsewhere to be holy like i am holy and guys that's the beautiful mystery of sanctification that it is an ongoing process of yes being saved yes being right before god yes having our sins blotted out but continuing to grow into looking someone that looks more and more like Jesus each and every day. Um, And so I say this, the reason why I know this isn't a prayer of salvation, the reason why I know this isn't like a, a prayer of, God, I want my sins to be forgiven, or have mercy on me, Lord God, I'm a sinner, is Ephesians 2 Eight and nine tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So understand here um, if we pleaded for forgiveness on the basis of what we have done, i.e., we've forgiven those who have sinned against us, then we could come before God and ask for forgiveness. Salvation, therefore, would be conditional on the fact that we forgave somebody. But we can't genuinely forgive like Christ forgave someone without first knowing Jesus and doing that by way of the Holy Spirit. And so we can't sidestep and like jump steps here. We can't genuinely forgive if we've not known forgiveness on the scale that God has performed for us. It would be equating salvation with works. And the truth of the matter is, not one of us could be saved if it required us to be like God before He accepted and changed us. The fruit of forgiveness to others is found in the fact that we have first been forgiven. We, and I've seen this, I've seen people that have struggled with forgiving others, have struggled with bitterness and they don't have a strong-rooted confidence that God could actually forgive them for what was wrong, for what they had done, and they struggle, in a sense, to actually extend that same forgiveness to other people. To put it simply, the seeking of forgiveness is something that is ongoing in the Christian walk, I believe. The more I grow in my relationship with Jesus, the more grievous I realize I am, and the more of Jesus I recognize that I need. I recognize daily, friends, how much more I need Jesus than I thought I did. And that's okay. That's okay to recognize, man, I need more of Jesus. This isn't like just throwing some kind of pity party and like some kind of self-defamation, like, oh man, I just am terrible. And it's also not an excuse or a license to just sin. Um, But we must never think that we can outgrow the need for mercy. You can't out-mature, like you can't mature to such a level of Christendom, like you reach Christian plus 17 or something like that, and you don't need mercy on a daily, continual basis. Because I need it. I need it. I'm a credentialed minister with the assemblies of God, and I need it. You, as a person that loves Jesus maybe you're new to the faith, maybe you've been a senior saint and and you've been serving Jesus all the years of your life and you've got like 70 years under your belt saying yes to Jesus. We equally need mercy each and every day. Each and every day. Because this isn't about so much about us being justified, us being saved, us losing our salvation or anything like that. This is about our relationship with God. This is about our everyday intimacy. This is how we interact relationally with God. This is why it's a big deal. This is why we need forgiveness of sin, because sin does corrupt, it does cloud, it does act as a barrier between us and the Lord. How many of you guys have been in that place where you've lived in rebellion, where you've lived with a hardened heart, where you've lived with sin, and maybe you said yes to Jesus once before, maybe you prayed a prayer, maybe you surrendered your heart to him, but there came came a degree of separation between you and the Lord because of sin, And that's why we need consistent reminder of his mercy. That's why we need consistent reminder of his forgiveness. And that's why I believe Jesus outlines it here in Matthew chapter 6, the necessity and the need for us to continually ask for forgiveness. He wouldn't outline it in a model prayer for us. He wouldn't outline it in this thing immediately following the daily request for food. The daily request for sustenance sustenance, if he didn't intend for it to be an ongoing thing. We must never think that we can outgrow the need for mercy. I want you to think about this because if you think that everything's perfect and that we're without sin and that, you know, we're just, you know, because we've been saved and it's under the blood and we're good and we're perfect from here on out and you live with this, like, lie, you just live with this weight of dejection and disappointment because you think like, oh man, I'm supposed to be without sin, but I just keep messing up. Think of what uh, Think of what John writes. Two believers, mind you. He writes this to believers. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Friends, I'm not here to I'm not here this morning to, one, give you a free pass to do just whatever you want and live blatantly and openly and sin and say, you know what, God's going to forgive me. It's not what I'm saying. But I also want you to understand that there is still forgiveness for you even when you mess up. And he expects us to continue to rely on his mercy to sustain this Christian walk day in and day out. And so there's two basic assumptions that we can make from, or that we could derive from Jesus' petition here. The first is that we will need to be forgiven. Or Jesus wouldn't model it for us in the fact that we should ask for forgiveness. Right? So he expects the need that we would be forgiven, that we weren't yet perfect. Okay, I know somebody's going to be like, Pastor Nate, you're justifying sin, blah, blah, blah. No, show me your track record and then we can talk. We need Jesus and we need his forgiveness on a consistent basis. And the second is that people have hurt us. The second assumption is that people have, people will, and people are always going to hurt you. They're going to sin against you. And this is where Jesus can really identify he may not have have had to identify with asking for forgiveness of sin, but he was definitely acquainted with the notion of having to forgive those that had wronged him. The reality is every person in this room has a story of someone that has let them down, someone that has hurt you. And I don't, I don't know what your story is. It could be extreme. It could be child abuse. It could be, maybe you were raped. Maybe there was, maybe there was a, an abandonment that took place in your life. I don't, I don't know. But friends, I understand this, that God wants us to live in a place of forgiveness to those who hurt us. Some of us are petty. It's like somebody walked down the street um, and didn't say hi to us. Or like we were at the grocery store and we like noticed somebody like picking up a gallon of milk. And you're like, I don't want to talk to them. And so you just kind of like, bloom, try to get out of City Market. And maybe that hurts you. I don't know. But the reality of it is the forgiveness that God extended to us Sinful mankind, a debt that we could not repay, supersedes any, anything that anyone could do to you or to me that God would ask us to forgive. The travesty of what we did to God in our disobedience to him, he demonstrated his great love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to forgive us of that trespass. And in doing so, it enabled us to freely forgive those who had hurt us, those who have wronged us. And not only is that something that, like, we're supposed to do, it's actually expected. And God says that if we want this forgiveness to be genuine and we want it to be real, we need to expect it to be reciprocated in everyone around you. Okay, I get this is, this is heavy. This is not easy. This is hard for me. Because as I was reading this, God, I don't struggle with forgiveness, man. Me and everybody are good. And he's like, oh, really? What about this person? It's like, oh, what about this person? And I'm like, I thought, I don't like this game, Jesus, where it's easier for me to just get behind the microphone and tell you guys what you need to do. And I really wish that he didn't have to tell me that I had to do the same thing, right? Guess what? We're on the same playing field. We, <laughs> if anything, uh, it says that I should be judged stricter and harsher. As a teacher, and uh, yeah. (sighs) Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) The truth is that we have all sinned and we have all been sinned against. To put it plainly, we need to be forgiven and then we need to forgive. We need to be forgiven and we need to forgive. We're to model God's forgiveness to us by the way we interact relationally with the world around us. It's actually a really big deal in Jesus' teaching, this whole concept of forgiveness. Earlier in the chapter, well, not the chapter, I guess, earlier in the sermon, previous chapter, Matthew five twenty-three 23, uh, and 24, we Read about this idea, if you're going to come and worship God, but you have a grievance against your brother that you should leave your, you leave your sacrifice there at the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother before you come back and complete your act of worship, right? God says, I'm not interested in your worship if there's a grievance that you have, if there's unforgiveness that you have with your brother, Deal with that first, and then maybe we can be reconciled. This this theme is permeating throughout Scripture. Again, in verse 43, we see this notion of enemy love that Jesus talks about, the fact that we're to love our enemies, that we're to bless those who curse us, right? It's backwards. It's upside down. It doesn't make sense in a logical, carnal viewpoint, right? Because we're taught if somebody wrongs you, you're justified to hold a grievance, right? How many times have we been talking with our friends and we explain our point of view and we're just trying to get somebody to agree with us that we're justified in being upset with so-and-so? We do it. and We very well may be justified in a human perspective, but God's requirement of us is that we would live in a state of forgiveness and letting it go of keeping no record of wrongs. That's a lot easier to just say in a sermon than it is to do. I recognize that. I realize that. I'm not trying to just just pretend like, oh, I've got this all figured out and I've got it, you know, I've got the answer to it. But the reality is Jesus cares about forgiveness. In fact, he teaches on it in Matthew 18, 21. I'm going to read this whole parable to you because Peter comes up to him and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Like up to seven times? Because, you know, uh, Peter's like, Jesus, I got you. I'm on the same length. Like I'm, I'm tracking with you. We're supposed to live in forgiveness. But how many times are we supposed to do it? Right? How many times are we supposed to forgive that knucklehead who just keeps, keeps, keeps sinning against me? Right? He's like, am I supposed to do like seven times? Because that's a lot. But that's like the number of of completions. So, and and, and I'm sure Peter was thinking like, Jesus is going to say like two or three times, four or five times, maybe seven. And so I think Peter was like trying to overshoot it here. And Jesus responds and says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That's a lot. And Jesus is, I think here, um, basically using an expression saying, you know what, you're supposed to forgive him indefinitely. (laughs) And he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he had begun to settle accounts, um, when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But when he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And he would not, but he went and threw him into prison till he could pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came to and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until they should be, until they should pay, until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to each of you from his heart if, oh my goodness. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. These are the teachings and the words of Jesus. This isn't me just trying to get you to forgive me because I offended you or something like that. This is what Jesus says is paramount to us having right relationship with God. If there's one thing that you took away from this teaching, if there's one thing that you and I'm not I'm saying like we can be saved, we can be justified. God can see us as righteous and see us as saved and on our way to heaven and we can still struggle with this and he wants it to be dealt with. It says forgiveness, I wrote this that forgiveness is a big deal to Jesus, right? We see that. He talks about it a lot. He says that if we're not faithful to forgive others, that we're not going to be forgiven. Um, So we should take those words of Jesus very seriously. I believe this. It is impossible to be right with God and wrong with another person. It is impossible to be in right standing with Jesus in perfect relationship as he intended for it to be without any brokenness in fellowship and have a grievance and hatred in your heart towards somebody else to 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 swelter in this place of unforgiveness. I'm saying forgiveness, yes. I'm not saying you have to be best friends with everybody. Hear me out. I'm not saying that you just have to be nice to everybody, but we do need to live and operate in forgiveness. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another. Please, just take note of this, guys. Be kind to one another, (laughs) tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. We could talk about a lot of this stuff. I could give you like four tips on how to forgive and how to let go. And Anybody ever do the forgiveness thing where they come up, it's like, I forgive you for that. And the other person was like, what? What did I do? It's really just a backhanded way of letting somebody know that you were offended and hurt by them. It's not really, that's not what I'm saying to do. Just, that's Pastor Nate's Advice 101. Um, I believe deeply rooted here that many of us struggle with forgiveness because we have a poor understanding of the forgiveness that Christ paid for us. It's easy for me to believe that God could forgive everybody else, but just not me because I know me, right? Right? I know what I think. I know what I do. I know my I know my shortcomings. <laughs> and I it's easy for me to believe that, man, God can forgive Joey because he's a good dude. Yeah, Joey messes up, but man, God could forgive him, but man, I'm a pastor. I'm not supposed to struggle with this. I'm not supposed to think like that. I'm supposed to have this together and God, blah, blah, blah. And in reality, I believe uh, I need fresh revelation of the forgiveness of Christ. And uh, equally joined to that, um, there is this requirement that we demonstrate it to others, that we forgive others the same way Christ forgave us. That's not easy. And the only way that that happens is by way of the Holy Spirit. The only way that happens is with supernatural help because this isn't a natural thing right? We understand that. It's, it's not natural to just let it go, right? If I was feeling more confident, this would be where I would do like a Disney princess song, because we were listening to Disney princess songs at a three-year-old's birthday party yesterday, and it was great. But the way I wanted to end this morning was I wanted us to genuinely pray this prayer, the Lord's prayer here that we would ask God, Lord, would you forgive our sins as we have forgiven those who sinned against us. And for some of us, that might be, man, you've, you've recognized you've already done it and you've forgiven them in your heart right now. Maybe this is more of a promise to the Lord. God, Lord, I need, I need to be confident in your forgiveness that I can forgive those who have sinned against me. Would you help me? All in all, we can't do it in ourselves. And so, Father, I'm just asking for your church. I'm asking for myself. Lord, that you would forgive our sins. Lord, forgive the things that uh, take up residence and provide distance between you and me. Lord, I'm asking that you would forgive. Lord, I confess that there are things there are passions, there are desires, there, are, there is just wasted time, Lord, that keeps me from you. Lord, I'm sure there's plenty in this room. Lord, your word says, though, that if we're faithful to confess, you're faithful to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we ask for that. But at the same time, Lord, we think of those that have grieved us. Lord, we think of those that have sinned against us, those who have hurt us, the bitterness that's taken root. And Lord, we don't want that to keep us from perfect fellowship with you. So I'm asking, Lord, for my friends in this room, for myself, God, that you would enable us, help us let go, help us forgive. We don't want to pray a lie. But we want to live out forgiveness demonstrate it to our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Our ministry is made possible entirely by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this message and would like to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, visit us online at www.opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give, see our service times, and stay connected with Open Door Church. We hope to see you soon.